This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. In 1998, voters in Washington approved Initiative 200, which many interpreted as ending affirmative action in the state. It turns out that interpretation is incorrect, and that has resulted in a terrible cost for BIPOC communities and women for 23 years. Today, an organization called Washington Equity Now Alliance is dedicated to righting what is a historic wrong. We are joined by five-term state representative Jesse Weinberry to talk about what's being done and about how you can help. That is next. We here in Washington have been living under a mistake, one that has impacted us since the passage of I-200 in 1998. This was a voter initiative that wound up putting a stop to all affirmative action in the state because of a directive by then-Governor Gary Locke. If you're confused, don't worry. Our guest attorney and former state representative Jesse Weinberry is here to help clear things up and to tell you how you can make things right. Weinberry served five terms as a state representative and was the first African-American to be House Majority Whip. He is with Washington Equity Now Alliance, an organization dedicated to mobilizing public education and support about this issue. And we are so glad that he is here. How are you this morning, sir? It's great to be with you, Stefan, and, and, and I'm uh, uh, eager to, uh, to talk about it. And I thank uh, Washington State Indivisible for focusing on this issue because I believe uh, uh, your, your broad statewide network can really help us make a difference on a major major issue. We are hoping very much the same thing. And so what I'd like to do is kind of unpack this rather complex issue. And I think the place to start is with I-200. So this, as I mentioned, passed in 1998. So let's start there. What specifically did I-200 do? I-200's only mission, as it was stated in 1998 and all of the millions of voter pamphlets, was to simply prohibit programs that took a lesser qualified person and elevated them over a more qualified person for a seat in college, for a public job, or a public contract solely based on their race or gender. And that's it. And in the voters pamphlet, it specifically said, this measure is not to kill all affirmative action programs, just programs that, as I said, took a lesser qualified candidate and put them over a more qualified candidate for a seat in a public college, a public job, a public contract, solely based on their race or gender. That's all I-1000, I mean, I'm sorry, that's all I-200 was seeking to accomplish in 1998. We will get to I-1000 in just a moment, but I think as you're saying, the language here is extraordinarily important, and so I'm just going to kind of put a yellow highlighter on it. Uh, So it prohibited uh, admitting, hiring, contracting a lesser qualified candidate over a more qualified one based solely on race or gender, and it did not end affirmative action in Washington. And so after it passed, then-Governor Gary Locke signed uh, Governor's Directive 9801. What did that do, and what did it say? Well, that's a good question because a lot of people don't know what a governor's directive is. Maybe let's start there. Yeah, what is a governor's directive? Well, when your introduction of me, you talked about my service in the state, in the Washington State Legislature, that I was majority whip of the House of Representatives, and I'm a lawyer. And I just found out uh, about a governor's directive uh, maybe in the last few months in terms of what it was. And what it is, it's different from a governor's uh, executive order. A governor's executive order is public. 
it is it, it it affects the public and so when a governor uh signs an executive order most of the time the press is there there's a press conference uh the press covers it it's in it's on social media as well as traditional media and so people know about it because it affects their lives like what, what we've seen during the uh the pandemic where governor Inslee has had to uh, sign repeatedly different executive orders uh, to help uh, us stay alive during the pandemic. Right. But a governor's directive is not public. It's it's a it's basically a directive, a written directive or memo to that governor's cabinet, to those secretaries and directors and managers of state agencies. And quite often, these governor's directives, as was the case here can be adopted by counties, cities, school districts, um, universities and colleges. And that's what's happened. That's what happened with uh, 9801. It was a governor's directive that the governor sent to his cabinet at the time, but uh, that became the law of the land. And that governor's directive did not limit uh, the programs that I-200 was focusing on. In other words, it didn't say, just make sure you don't take a lesser qualified candidate and elevate them over a more qualified candidate based on race or gender. It said you cannot use race or gender going forward unless you are engaging in outreach and recruitment. In other words, no hiring, no college admissions, no contracting. And that's the lifeblood of our economy, education, jobs, and business. And so uh, it was uh, a, a big difference between the directive that told the agencies and various uh, levels of government how they were to implement I-200, which was extremely different than what I-200 actually said. You know, it, 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 this raises so many questions. I mean, ultimately, what you're saying is that what got implemented was not really the will of the voters. And I, this is speculation, of course, but I'll just ask you any insight into why Governor Locke not only would have done this, but why he did this via directive instead of an executive order? Well, I, I think I think that's a good question to ask uh, uh, former Governor Locke. As, mm. as, as many people watching this uh, podcast uh, know, Governor Locke and I were seeking mates in the 37th district we served in the house of representatives together uh i supported him for king county executive as well as for governor so i consider him a friend so and i know his heart so i know in his heart he was not trying to uh, implement a law that was much more tougher than the law that the voters passed but we have to recognize that the lens that he had to look through he and, and our, our whole society in 1998 was a lens that saw a movement uh, called um, anti-reverse discrimination. And that is part of what I-200 was. It was, it was pushed by right-wing conservatives who really uh, were dissatisfied and angry that more women and more people of color were finally getting a break in our society. They were getting a college education. They were walking across those aisles with degrees. They were getting jobs. They were owning businesses and creating hundreds and thousands of jobs in our state. And so that was their, uh, that was their swing of the bat at the diversity that they saw emerging in America. Uh, but at the same time, 
what we have is is really an advantage now over what Governor Locke and his administration had. They didn't have the advantage of a series of court cases, all at either the state Supreme Court or U.S. Supreme Court level, that have come behind I-200 and interpreted the the scope of the law. He had 30 days after the <laughs> after the initiative passed. The initiative passed on November 3rd, 1998, and it gave the governor 30 days. Literally by December 3rd, 1998 he had to issue a directive on how this new law was going to be implemented. And so he didn't have much time. Uh, to his credit, he fought against the passage of I-200. He was the lead campaigner. If you go back to that voters pamphlet, as we recently did back in 1998, the statement against I-200 was written by Governor Locke. So he campaigned against it, but then he had to govern and follow the law, and that is issue some quick uh, 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 handbook or instruction manual on how this new law was to be implemented. So uh, I don't put the total blame on him. We, as I said, uh, he had a, a, a lens, a different lens that he had to look through in 1998 than certainly what we have now in 2021. I appreciate you putting all the context there for us and those who lived through those days. I'm old enough to have uh, remember uh, a lot of those sentiments during that time uh, right. very unfavorably. You know, you mentioned the, the the Washington State Supreme Court and its ruling. This is in 2003. They made a ruling on the interpretation of I-200. What did they say? Yeah, that's and that's where we see the difference between the advantage we have uh, versus the disadvantage that Governor Locke had. So five years later, the Supreme Court reviews uh, exactly what was intended by I-200 and how is it supposed to be in- interpreted and implemented. And that's when they handed down the decision that now everyone is aware of, and that is it never required the elimination of affirmative action uh, uh, programs, laws, or policies. Never. They ruled that it was limited to what it said and to what the voters trusted, embraced, and voted for. And that is to prevent a lesser qualified candidate from being selected over a more qualified candidate for a public job, a public contract, or a seat in a public college solely based on race or gender. And that is what has helped begin to shape the, the more correct interpretation and implementation of the law. Well, I want to get into some of the the ways that, that we're going to address this, and your organization wants to do precisely that. But, you know, I'll just ask you before we move to that, this was something that was done 23 years ago, and I wonder if you can talk about some of the impact that you have seen since then. Well, uh, it's been uh, a disaster, uh, to put it in a word, and it's not just my opinion. Uh, When you look at um, uh, the state government uh, disparity studies that have been uh, implemented since the passage of I-200, all of them show that women and people of color are experiencing some of the worst discrimination when it comes to college admissions, when it comes to especially the sciences, uh, and and when it comes to uh, seeking uh, and applying for jobs and getting hired at the state, at the county, at the city, at the school district level, 
Um, as a matter of fact, uh, in public testimony, the director of the Office of Women and Minority Business Enterprises uh, testified uh, uh, less than a couple of years ago before the state Senate Government Committee that since 1998 and the passage of I-200 and the implementation of Governor's Directive 9801, small women and minority-owned businesses have lost close to $4 billion, wow. $4 billion in contracting opportunities compared to what they were achieving 20 years before 1998, 20 years before the passage of I-200 and the uh, implementation of Governor's Directive 9801. And so when you think about losing $4 billion, that can uh, shatter not only individual businesses, but families' lives, uh, because they don't have their 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 income anymore. Uh, it can devastate communities because people who were getting the jobs from those contracts and getting the jobs from those opportunities that were available are now no longer able to buy a home, to finance their kids' college, to, uh, uh, to pay a mortgage. And so you see the changes in our communities uh, uh, as well as well as the changes in and, and women and people of color's uh, income and net worth, which is, a, which is a, a, a statistic that shows that when you look at African-Americans and compare it to white Americans in terms of net worth, the average net worth of, of, a, of a white citizen, particularly in King County or Seattle and Washington State, is like 400,000. <laughs> yeah. The average net worth of, of, that, of a black family in that same city and county is like 28,000 net worth. 28,000 bucks compared to uh, nearly half a million. And so that is one of the uh, results. But uh, even if it was a wealthy person losing $4 billion, Bill Gates <laughs> would not, <laughs> would, would, would miss losing $4 billion. And so certainly if one of the richest people in the world, uh, he and Jeff Bezos would miss $4 billion, that means the average person who would be dependent upon that $4 billion economy is certainly uh, suffered. And we have met many of the uh, 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 former business people that had businesses during, those, during that period and have lost them, have filed bankruptcy. And uh, they, they point directly to I-200. And now that we're more educated and enlightened, they're also pointing to the implementation of I-200 as a cause of their situation as well. Yeah, it's really just devastating. And, you know, the disparities, as you say, were there, uh, but this made it so, so much worse. It is my understanding that your organization, Washington Equity Now Alliance, uh, believes that the gov this is the, the, the responsibility of the governor at this point to rescind a previous order. Do I have that correct? Yeah, so uh, when you look at the three branches, uh, unless there's a lawsuit, the courts are not able to intervene. And uh, this was a governor's directive. And so it, it came out of the executive branch and the more appropriate response to a governor's directive is any succeeding governor. In other words, Governor Locke was governor, then Governor Christine Gregoire, and now Governor uh, Jay Inslee. So we've only had two governors since Governor Locke, but uh, Governor Inslee obviously is our governor now. So he is the one person, according to our constitution, the only person in Washington state that can rescind uh, this uh, governor's directive. And, and yes, we have uh, 
uh, launched a public awareness campaign to encourage Washington citizens to uh, encourage the governor to uh, rescind Governor's Directive 9801. And you have a self-imposed deadline on this. What is that deadline? And, and why is it important for the governor to do this by that deadline? Well, we are, what we've been doing is working with the governor's office on language uh, for an executive order. Uh, and also making the case legally uh, to, to him and, and his uh, policy and legal and Office of Equity staff. And the main reason we're saying equity now and not next week <laughs> and not next month is because people have been enduring the pain of the implementation of I-200 for 23 years. And there are opportunities that are coming now that uh, will determine whether uh, many of the people who have been suffering all these years will be able to now make a comeback. The first opportunity is the American Rescue Act, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, people know that uh, President Biden signed over $1 trillion to go out to the states back in March. Well, Washington's share of that is $10.2 billion. And a good, a good, a good share of that $10.2 billion uh, is is now being allocated, and a lot of it is contracting dollars. A lot of it is is is, uh, is funding to to increase jobs and to hire people. A lot of it is for our colleges and universities. And so, when you think about it, those dollars right now are being allocated based on the old rules, the rules of twenty three of the last twenty three years, which means not as many women and not as many people of color will be able to, to uh, get the opportunities that they're certainly qualified for because the, the agencies can't use race to increase diversity. They can't use gender to increase diversity under the, under the current implementation of I-200. And so we're saying uh, the money's been wired, but we've got to make sure people get hired. <laughs> and the only way we can do that since uh, the funds are being allocated right now is to, is to change the law to achieve equity now, not next week, not next month, not next year, but right now. You know, it occurs to me that since I-200 is a law that is already on the books, and this seems like an instance of basically upholding, doing something that will uphold the original will of the people who voted for I-200, yes. do you have any idea why Governor Inslee might be resistant to rescinding uh, Governor Locke's directive here? Well, I don't consider Governor Inslee to be resistant. Uh, as I said, we've been actually meeting with the governor's staff. And so obviously we would, well, he wouldn't have uh, his staff meeting with us if he was resistant. But I, but I, but you are calling on people to put pressure on him, right? Well, we're, well, here's what we're doing. Uh, a governor in this instance is all by him or herself making this policy. So he doesn't have the advantage of signing a bill that's already been passed by the legislature, which is the representative body of the people. He doesn't have an initiative that has come as a result of th hundreds of thousands of signatures and people you know, uh, uh, urging him to do it. So this is a unique situation where we have to go out and educate the public, and that's why we appreciate you having us on the show today, to educate people so that they can in turn let the governor know that they've got his back. Maybe that's a better way to put it, not to, to, to force him to, to sign a, an executive order. I am the first to say that there is no guarantee that the governor will sign an executive order. 
And if he does sign an executive order, there's no guarantee that that executive order will rescind uh, 9801. And so we have to have the public engage in democracy and uh, uh, let their voices be heard uh, by their emails, by their calls, by their texts, uh, even U.S. mail <laughs> for people who still use the, the post office to get letters and statements to the governor's office, letting him know that we have his back to do this with the stroke of his pen to bring racial equity and gender equity back to Washington state. Well, as you know, uh, the Indivisible uh, movement here in the state is 50,000 people strong, and uh, they're very active, and they, uh, I think, will be uh, very interested in doing what it takes uh, to to make this right. So where should people go to to make their voices heard? Well, number one, the easiest thing to do is is to use whatever device is your device of choice, whether it's your phone whether it's your iPad, whether it's your desktop. Uh, whether it's the U.S. Is, mail, as you said, yeah. <laughs> or whether it's the U.S. mail. But, but particularly those of us who are on the Internet, uh, go to our website, waequitynow.com. That's waequitynow.com, because we have a Sign Your Name campaign. You're able to go to that website. You're able to, to sign your name. I mean, not with a pen, but you're able to type in your name and to make the statement, to the governor, yes, we urge you to issue an executive order that will finally rescind Governor's Directive 9801. And we have, at this point, we launched the website back in April. There's over 100,000 people who have gone online just to do that. That's the easiest thing to do. While you're there, we hope you'll click on donate because this is this is a very expensive <laughs> endeavor and a campaign unlike any other. We're not trying to get uh, somebody elected to office. We're not trying to pass an initiative. We're really uh, using our resources to uh, build support and awareness for this issue so that uh, the governor can can uh, know that he has the support of the people of Washington state to take this action. It's my understanding you're also asking legislative districts and county democratic orgs to pass a resolution in support of this. Do I have that right? Yes. As a matter of fact, I mean, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, uh, The support that we've received so far has been off the rails. It's been through the roof because once people are educated about this, they want to right what has been a historical wrong. And so uh, the King County Democrats, Pierce County, Snohomish County, Whatcom County, Kittitas, uh, Thurston, uh, Wakayakum, uh, uh, Spokane, and, and, and other counties that normally don't weigh in on issues like this uh, have been very enthusiastic to not just uh, hear, get the information and, and stop there, but they have all passed resolutions unanimously in most cases and sent them to the governor's office already. So that translates uh, in a big way because the governor Inslee is a Democrat. And so he's hearing from his party, the people who campaign for him and elect him and, and, and contribute uh, to his campaigns uh, financially are saying, governor, this is something we want you to do. And so on August, I'm sorry, on uh, September 25th, the Washington State Democrats are actually gathering for a statewide meeting. And one of the actions that uh, they plan to take is to cast a statewide vote 
uh, urging the governor to rescind uh, Governor's Directive 9801. So we're we're organizing and working toward that, and we can't wait uh, until September 25th. That's going to be a big day for Washington State. I'm just going to sum up everything that you've just said. So uh, we are asking individuals to sign on via the website that is waequitynow.com or via also the Take Action Network. And I'll have that in the show notes for folks. Uh, Group leaders, uh, if you can, please send this around to all of your members. And for groups to sign on, we will have a signable document uh, for you also in the show notes. And then, uh, as Jesse is saying, also asking legislative district leaders and county democratic orgs to pass a resolution in support of this and also of course, to donate. And again, all of this information will be in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. Any final words on the matter for you? No, I, I, I think, I, I mean, you, you, you've, you've really covered it. And, and again, I want to thank you for devoting time uh, to this issue. There are a lot of issues that are exploding out there. And, uh, and, and, and this is just one of them. And so I appreciate the time you're giving it. But I think it is timely. I mean, uh, the, the census has just come out. And we're finding that the United States of America is more racially and ethnically diverse than it's ever been in the history of planet Earth. And in Washington State in particular, uh, we're, we're working with uh, some porters uh, of, the, of the Equity Now movement in, in uh, Yakima County. And uh, they just got their census uh, data showing that Yakima for the first time is uh, 50% or more <laughs> people of color. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's a majority uh, minority county. That's the first time we've, we've ever achieved that. But yet you look at the high unemployment of, uh, of the Latinx community that is now the majority, uh, it's shameful. You, you look at their housing, uh, you look at their health care, they, I mean, the, the Latinx community has been one of the communities that has been uh, carrying the hospitalization and, and death burden during the coronavirus pandemic. Even though they are, th- are roughly uh, 30% of the population, they're nearly 60% of the uh, victims of, of COVID-19 in terms of hospitalizations and fatalities. And yet they are the majority uh, in Yakima County. So we want the education and employment and enterprise benefits to go to those that should have had them a long time ago. Imagine had we been implementing I-200 correctly uh, for the last 23 years. Certainly the economic status of the uh, uh, Latinx community in, in, in uh, Yakima County would be better than it is now, but it's never too late. Um, and, and now is the best time to start. And that'll do it for this week. Thank you again to Jesse Weinberry and also to Kat Pipkin. The show notes to everything we talked about can be found at indivisiblepodcast.org. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.